Welcome everyone to a deck hockey focused special presentation, the 50 year history of organized street deck and ball hockey. In this five part series, we will go over the 50 year history of the game, taking it from the tennis courts and the back alleys that we saw in the 1970s to the first rinks established in the 1980s, all the way up to the US majors and the international hockey that we see today. Tonight, we're excited to bring you part one of our five-part series, beginning with the 1970s, the birth of organized street hockey. Joining us today is Chris Hauser, who will tell his story of the origins of the sport. But before we do that, we do want to introduce a special guest, Scott Duggan. Scott came to us with this idea being the 50th anniversary of organized street hockey and helped produce the entire content. Scott, what should we expect from the viewers in this series? We've got 20 of the uh, greatest influencers of our sport, captains, team managers, rink owners, tournament, international organizers, and they're going to take us in their own words how this sport started in its organic form to how we got to uh, all these big events that we see today. Okay, Scott, so take us back to the very beginning, to the absolute origins, which I assume are like everyone else's origins, playing in the streets playing pickup games, but in order to take it from the streets to what we see today, it takes a founding father. So who would you say is the initial person that got the ball rolling and, and set us on the path? So there's obviously a lot of people who are involved in the process, especially in the early years, but to point to one person, the godfather of our sport for you know, lack of a better phrase is definitely Ray LeClerc. Ray LeClerc, for those who don't know, founded Milac, he founded ASHI, which was the first you know, street hockey institution, which later became the Lemonster Deck Hockey Center. And, and Ray started in the, in the 1970s from really messing around with you know, rules and rink and surface and equipment that really catered to that organic style of street hockey of just playing in your street, you know, moving the nets when the car came. So he really started to take all this stuff and you know, mess around with it and hold these organized games. But the, the game itself as an organized sport really took off, really grew legs in 1972 with a chance meeting between Chris Hauser and Ray LeClerc. Well, um, just a side note is tomorrow is the 48th anniversary of our trip to Lemonster from Niagara Falls. That started really the whole tournament circuit. So how I met Mr. LeClerc was there was an article in the Hockey News in uh, April of 1972, and a friend of mine, Joe Murray, we went to the library to grab the hockey news, and we both got there around the same time, and we read this big article in the hockey news about a street hockey rink here in Massachusetts, and a guy named Ray LeClerc with sponsors Phil and Tony Esposito and Lou Nanny that had invented this orange plastic ball and we're now playing street hockey. It was called street hockey in a rink in Lemonster. So we went home that afternoon and I got a hockey magazine I used to get every uh, month. And sure enough, there was a story in the back of the hockey magazine about a similar type thing. And it had an agent's name in there, Fred Scharf. He was the agent for uh, Phil and Tony Esposito. And uh, there was a phone number in there. We tracked Fred Scharf down, and he gave us Milek's number. So Milek was the original company. And they'd been developing the sport for a couple of years on the heels of Bobby Orr. Bobby Orr was so popular, he changed the game. That everybody in Massachusetts and New England, many parts of Canada, wanted to play hockey without skating. 
most of the people didn't skate in Canada. Like people think that we're born with skates on. It's not true. So we're always playing in the road, in gyms, in schoolyards. So we got in touch with Mylak. We didn't know Mr. Leclerc at the time. And uh, uh, we set up this games for June 16 through 19. And there's going to be three games. And we went on the uh, radio to raise money. It was kind of a, we didn't really know where we were going, what we were going to be doing, or who this guy was. And we didn't really know who Milak was either. And uh, so we started organizing our team to get ready to come to Massachusetts. Even with the sport in its infancy, the drive, determination, and preparation was prevalent with Chris Helzer's first trip to Limitster in the first ever organized street hockey tournament. And uh, fortunately, uh, my dad, he'd been uh, the bus driver for the Niagara Falls Flyers, which was the farm team of the Bruins, Boston Bruins. They wore the same colors. Instead of a B, there was an NF. And at the time, I was 19. I was working with a few of those Niagara Falls Flyers who became Boston Bruins, Fred Stanfield, um, Derek Sanderson, Doug Favell, Bill Goldsworthy, and um, Ron Schock. And told them what I was trying to do. So Ron Schock said, well, I'll help train you guys for several practices. And uh, training meant, you know, uh, we never played in a rink. We are always once in a while in a gym. So he trained us with boundaries, you know, defensive plays. And only out of the 10 guys that, that came with us, only two, uh, myself, John Barton, three of us, uh, and Joe Murray played ice hockey. The other seven guys didn't play ice hockey. They're all football stars or, you know, just street hockey guys. We call them road hockey. And uh, that's how we started everything in motion. So we got on the radio in Niagara Falls, and Joe Murray and I, we raised about $1,200. People sent us donations, $2 checks, $3 checks. And we booked a bus ride from Lemonster to uh, – Niagara Falls to Lemonster. So that happened on, we arrived here on June 16th. All 10 of us were billeted in different homes. Uh, four of us went to Rayla Clerk's house. That's how we first met him. With Hauser's arrival in Lemonster in 1972, it was already apparent that Rayla Clerk had begun laying the groundwork for the sport. So that was really the beginning. Now, what he had done at this point was he had created the orange ball, but there was a couple different sizes. He had some plastic bladed sticks, which you used to be able to put on an old broken shaft. And he developed a couple of new sticks called the airflow. One was a power blade and one was a flex blade. So when we got to come in and play our games, there was this rink with a green painted floor, and it was 155 feet long by 75 feet wide. And Scott, you know, Jean Guy, he was in the charge of the team from Lemister, and they had seven minor league pro guys on the team. And what they did next is we played, uh, the first game got rained out, which is a Friday, and the next two we played. And uh, for Mr. Leclerc, it showed that you could have competitive play in street hockey beyond just league play. And that was his real dream, was to uh, develop a sport that was organized with rules. And a lot of this came not only because of uh, 
um, Bob Yor and the Bruins and all that. But he had a son that had died at 16 years old. His name was Michael LeClerc. And, that, and Michael LeClerc was a standout athlete, played all the time, played games, golf, you name it. He did everything. So when he died, Mr. LeClerc really started to put his efforts into developing something in his name. That's where you get the name Milek, which is Michael LeClerc. Chris Hauser's first tournament experience was certainly eye-opening. Well, when we got to Leominster, uh, we didn't know really what to expect. We were uh, a really strong group of guys in our neighborhood. We probably never had more than seven or eight guys playing in a game. We, and like I say, we play in gyms and things, and we challenge neighborhood against neighborhood. But we really didn't know if we were good or bad. We didn't know where we were going to fall on this trip. So when we showed up, in the, uh, I remember my first impression was we, is we saw the other team come on the rink and they had like 20 guys. We had 10, and one was an extra backup goalie, but we ended up letting him play out. So really, we didn't have uh, many players. And Mr. Clark came over to me and he said, um, "You guys okay with the amount of guys you have?" And I said to him, "Do we have too many?" And he started laughing. So. Our experience started with the place was packed. You know, if you've been in a lot of these games where the people stand around a rank wall, we had to have complicity through his organization, which we didn't know about, and the place was packed. There had to be, you know, three, 400 people there. And they had stands, and they were sitting in the stands, and we didn't know what to expect. So when they dropped the first ball, seven seconds later, we had scored. And we won that game nine to nothing. And the next day... Uh, and by the way, there was checking in one zone, the defensive zone. And we had a couple of really good halfback football players playing defense for us. One was Bruce Murray, the other was Pierre Sagne. And these guys could not only run, but they were they could check, hip check. So when we got to the next game, which was uh, the next day, and we beat them 13-1, to 1, and that really put in motion a lot of things. Now, we had a painted floor, which was great. Uh, divided lines, ball was in, in the boards, the ball played really well. We didn't use their plastic sticks because we had never trained with them. We were just using our, our sticks that we had. And they were from Titan, which had uh, plastic right along the very bottom uh, of the blade, which was, we, we did it because it would save our stick on the street because we were always playing on tar. And those were the best sticks to use. So in between all those games, uh, I got to know Mr. LeClerc, and he started showing me why he developed the game, his vision, and obviously, you know, his vision was to put that the double, triple rink on Route 2 in Lemister, and then to keep developing equipment. So we first got introduced to the to the ball, which was great because it barely bounced. The second thing uh, we got introduced to was he had shin pads that you could wear on the outside of your clothing. And he started talking about rules, and he had a vision that the rules wouldn't not involve checking. We never really thought about it for a second because when we played outdoors, nobody ever checked. If you're playing in a schoolyard, you're not checking and you're not checking people against fences or walls. It was just a, a given, but we didn't have referees and or scoreboards or anything. So this was like, you know, going to, in our version, it would be like going to the Boston Garden or Maple Leaf Gardens at the time. So that was our very first experience. It was a really good one. And I think it, for him, too, it was, it was really 
good for him because he saw that you could have high-level competition, and uh, then it evolved. It went from two teams in 72 to six teams in 73, and then uh, 10 teams in 74. Then the tournament became a 20-team tournament from that point after until uh, 1997. And then the tournaments have evolved from the U.S. Nationals, Can-Am, and then other events for street hockey, you know. So the other thing that he had for rules was, besides he got eventually rid of the checking, was uh, he had two particular rules that were different from ice hockey. One was a high stick rule, because nobody was wearing helmets or face shields. So waving for the ball, other than um, taking a shot or, or after you score a goal, was a penalty, and um, and the other rule which was significant was uh, how he divided the rink up. So he divided it in two, so there was only one blue line, one offside line versus two, and then instead of icing, he called it clearing, which was basically from the same area you would be if you were in an ice hockey rink. So the, the length of the rink and the size of the rink was important to him too because you got a lot of action out of a rink that's 155 or 60 feet long, and 75 feet or 80 feet wide versus an ice hockey rink, which is made at 200 by 80 or 85. And that's a long ways to run. And that game really develops in the next few years, and and that's when they start calling that game ball hockey. The ball was rolling, and they had the teams. Now all the game needed was a home. Well, what happened was – Mr. LeClerc in 72 started showing me some plans of what he wanted to do. And the second year we came down, he showed me the piece of land where the Lemister Deck Hockey Center is now. So original name was American Street Hockey Center. And Mr. LeClerc, what he did was he had this vision and he was developing the marketing materials about putting rinks in a lot of different communities through a couple different ways, commercial or um getting record departments to pitch in. So he said that uh, it was mutual. I said, look, when I finish my uh, third year of college, university, I'll come down. I was working at the golf course, like I say, and and he said to um, come in for 10 weeks. So May 2nd, 74, I showed up here, and uh, they only had one rink was built. It was the East Rink. It had a green surface. And uh, we started, I came in and there was some games and things. And I was familiar with running leagues at our local YMCA. And I coached ice hockey and, uh, and, and while I was in high school. So we just kind of hit it off. You know, I could do certain things that he didn't have to worry about. And uh, I was trying to develop the idea that I could bring one of these home to Niagara Falls. You know, and he was working on ways to launch businesses with the same idea. So this one had a pro shop locker rooms, scoreboard, and they were in the process of making the West Rink, rink number two. So that's really where uh, I came in for those 10 weeks. While I was in for the 10 weeks, he uh, let go of the manager. So I finished the season, and then I was headed home. But well, instead of going to my last year of school, I said that I would uh, come back for the fall uh, if he finds another manager, I'll help with the guy, and then I'll just go back to school in January. So we were into the fall season, about three or four weeks, and then he fired the next guy. And uh, I said, well, I'll stay. You know, I might as well just stay to January. Now, 
And uh, we had a major problem uh, during the spring and the fall was that it was almost impossible to play when it was wet. The paint was slippery. So we were having lots and lots of cancellations. So the inventor, like he was, he was really given a lot of thought to how we could solve this. Now, first of all, he was a toy maker. He was now in the street hockey business. He's creating a game. So he's trying to figure out what kind of flooring we could use. So he was coming up with all different kinds of paints, meeting experts at the rink, painting different sections down, and seeing if anything would work. But we were using a demo area, which you can't see anymore. We weren't doing it right in the rink. and um, Nothing was really working. When it was wet, you couldn't play outdoors. That, that's a, that's what it amounted to. Unless you just wanted to, especially with paint, you'd be slipping around. Now, you could go to a tar, have some lines painted um, on the asphalt, and that might work. But it wasn't it wasn't very commercialized. You know, anybody could do that. It looked it looked like it was soft on a, on developing the game. So I went home for Christmas time. And said I'd come back for the spring. I'd work the year 1975 with him. So during 1975, early, uh, him and I took a ride to Boston. And he was developing an idea on a plastic surface. And we stopped at this place that had one. It was at Brown Nichols College. It used to be an A-frame outdoor rink, and they turned it to tennis rinks. So we went inside, and I had a stick and a ball with me and you know shooting around on it and the ball was moving across the surface like a puck on ice and he asked me what I thought and uh, I said this is great he goes well I got some drawings we drove all the way back to Lemister and we sat there it was a Hall Johnson's on route two we sat there and he pulled out a bunch of uh, paperwork showed me a design he had that was similar but different from the surface we'd just been on the other one didn't have any holes so that wasn't going to help the game. So this one had holes, and uh, and then he developed the first surface. About a month later, we had a surface on the east rink, and that was um, – we'd gone the spring. We did the spring again with no surface, but we, we put the um, surface down in September 1975. It was fantastic, except when the sun came out, it was rolling and – Doing heaving and doing everything. So we ripped that one up and he came up with a new design within a week and a new surface down, which was dark green. And that really is what started the next phase of the game, call it deck hockey. Although rules were previously established, now was the time to put pen to paper. Well, I think anybody who showed up in those days was thrilled, win or lose. They and and they would the building was very impressive. The had two beautiful ranks, you know, well-organized. Where they were coming from, none of their leagues were up to this par, you know, with referees, timers, clocks, you know, surfaces, uh, organization. You know, he, Mr. Clerk ran a really strong organization with his wife, Lorraine, and Tom Downey. And, uh, you know, he had a whole crew of people, Dave Cornick. So in 75, we'd worked on a, a rule book really he had a, he had a, the outline of a rule book when I when I met him, but by '75 we published a real rule book. You know, from start to finish, first half of the rule book was with tips. So what Milek was doing, and hockey was still 
getting bigger and bigger. I mean, by 74, Philadelphia Flyers had won the Cup. It was, and, and New Jersey was crazy over uh, hockey. You know, you have uh, the Islanders are coming into the scene. You've got uh, New York Rangers, and you've got the Philadelphia Flyers. So there was a strong following for hockey in general. So street hockey was off and running. And everywhere that Mr. LeClerc would sell a stick or a ball, they had a, uh, a small card, you know, get a team together and come to our tournaments. And that was a great marketing plan because now teams knew they could go somewhere and measure up. And when you saw the teams in the beginning, I'd go all the way back to 73 when a team came in from Pittsburgh. They were raw, very raw. You know, they thought they were good, but then they met better competition. So three years later, by 75 and 76, the tournaments were up to around 30 teams. He didn't play round robin. He just played, uh, you lose your second game and you're going home. So he'd get 32 teams in for a tournament. And he had, and that was the only tournaments that were being run at that time. So what happened really at that point was you were getting teams down in Philly starting to, to form and come out of the place. Pittsburgh was sending more and more teams. Nova Scotia uh, were coming to the internationals. Um, so by 76, you know, had, had really got lots and lots of momentum everywhere. Montreal, Quebec. Nova Scotia for the international tournaments. Our area, Niagara Falls, was still sending teams. And I was still trying to put up a rank in the Niagara Falls area, and I wasn't really – I was kind of going to leave and go back home by 76. But it was, the sport was getting bigger, and he kept asking me to stay, and I was very happy to stay because I could sense the feeling that something good was going to happen. With Lemonster as its capital city and the game rapidly growing, it was time to turn their sights outward for expansion. Okay, so Lemister obviously was the first one. And Mr. LeClerc was, you know, there was tons and tons of activity, like I say, in New Jersey, in uh, Long Island, and Pittsburgh. So our main contact for Pittsburgh at the time was Mark Madden. He played, he was bringing teams out from Pittsburgh, and he was running leagues in a uh, tennis court. So that was, that was his big thing. In Long Island, Mr. LeClerc developed a... Um, Almost the same time I was developing Niagara Falls, he developed two rinks out there, one with a guy named Brian Jackson, who did a great job. Uh, that was Long Island Deck. And then there was uh, Plaza Sports, which was Gene Mayer, another great guy. But uh, that wasn't a full-time job for him. Brian Jackson was full-time. So the first regional that I remember uh, him having was in 77. So by 77, the Long Island rink was in. And um, maybe it finished up early 78. But the first regionals hit there, and uh, so he was developing the idea that at the same time, rinks and more tournament play would bring a lot of people together. So Brian Jackson, he, I think he started with over 100 teams at his rink, and Gene, Gene Mayer, which was a couple of years later, a uh, different part of Long Island, which is heavily populated, he started. And then there was another guy in 78, Mike Massantonio. He was in Glen Olden, PA. So those three rinks really got going within a year of each other. Not far behind that was uh, Western Burks that started, I think, in 1980. But they weren't really hockey guys, and that was going to – it was headed for failure at some point. So what I did was I formed a group with a couple other guys, and 
got Mr. Leclerc's help. So what Mr. Leclerc was doing was on commercial projects, he would fund the surface and the rink. He would build it as long as the people got the land and they could, you know, he had suggestions for a pro shop and he would charge them a fee per game fee. And if you looked at the interest wise, it was, it was pretty high interest, but you had nothing to, to worry about. You know, he would build the rink. You would, you would follow all the specs to get the tar down, get the lights up and the clock. And uh, so you, you have an instant business. And I did the same thing with him. I put the first, our first rink in Niagara Falls happens in 79, in the October 79. And we used the same, the same format and formula. Uh, so we were off and running. But around 1980, I visited um, the Western Birch Rink. And I was with some guys from a team called the Suffolk County Kings, Tom Cochran and Rich Shulman. And we went to this rink and we ended up winning the tournament. And it was a whole breed of teams we never really saw before. And the two owners were frustrated running their leagues because it's not only, uh, it's a business, but you still have to learn how to run leagues, you know, scheduling and referees and all the hassle that comes with it. And he, um, they offered to sell the rink to me. And I said, well, I'm a long ways away. Let me see if I'll put a group together. So I put a group to, together called the Can-Am. And uh, it was four of us. And what we did was a couple guys from Lemister and these guys here took over the management of that rink. It was quite successful. And I got to know Mark Madden a little bit more. And by 84, we put a first rink in uh, Pittsburgh. I used the group of guys I had and took up an equity position and so we got, and that was in Penn Hills. And uh, not about a year and a half later, I started with the Quebec guys on my own, and then Gamer and Brian Tuppert, and we put our first surface in Quebec City. And uh, then that's when Patrick Rouault got involved with me and uh, Vince Trombley. They're both goalies. So it caught momentum. Mid-'80s was ranks going in everywhere. And the name Deck Hockey was, you know, they weren't calling it street hockey as much as deck hockey. The Long Island rinks, there was more going in. Not always a Milek rink anymore, but they were going in in different spots. At one time, there were six rinks in Long Island from 1978 to 84. And there was uh, Hartford put a rink in in 86. That lasted only a couple of years. And then uh, Waterbury had one. So we had a lot of action going on. But the big problem everyone was having was finding land you know, to put a rink in, getting investors, having a pro shop. So if Leclerc didn't fuel the whole program, it was very difficult for young guys to get in a business and get going. A bank would look at you, you know, like you were cross-eyed. With youth participation established, the framework was laid for women's entry into the sport. Well, I'll give you a little bit of background to Lemonster's. So in 1975, a lot of guys that you have played against, uh, Craig Holman and Tommy Perler, all those guys were in grade four, five, or six. And we had a whole crew. We started a school program. And Leclerc went into, um, and not only did he start it in Lemister, but we got some teams out of Clinton and, and surrounding cities. So the school program, he supplied the sticks, the helmets. There was no masks at the time and uh, shin pads and we those locker rooms that you see would be full of equipment and people could use it or so schools bought into the idea so they had six boys teams but we also had six girls teams 
and some of the girls wanted to play in the boys league and and you could find at that age they were as good if not better than some of the the boys as time went by those girls teams by when they're 9 11 and 12 now they're 18 19 20 in the in the early 80s they start forming we had a girls league at the uh women's league at the rink but that's when you start seeing uh women's teams starting to travel around 83 84 you know, we had tournaments in Niagara Falls. There was a couple tournaments down in Pennsylvania, Western Berks. I don't remember Long Island having any, but there was some teams from Long Island playing. So that's when really when the girls' program got going. And it died off for a long time, for a long, long time. And then um, in the early 2000s, Jamie Cook kind of revived the idea. He put some effort into it, and he got it going. You know, he got it all back caught the momentum these year you say yeah why don't we have a girls team and the girls league again so the girls thing has been sporadic but you know it's a it's a valid part of anyone's program and it has been a you know we've had some big tournaments in the past so it just hasn't been consistent and this concludes part one of our five-part series the 1970s the birth of organized street hockey we want to thank chris hauser for his insight and history into the development and we look forward to part two, the 1980s, the golden age of deck hockey. Scott, what can we expect? In the 1980s, the sport really takes off. You really see deck hockey as the major iteration of, of our sport. And it's being played all over the Northeast in New Jersey, Long Island, New York, Pennsylvania. And you're starting to see other influencers and contributors start to pop up. Mark Madden's a big name out, out in Pennsylvania. And all these other people really start to pick up and drive the sport, which is you know really the golden age of deck hockey.